here at Living Water, and uh, from time to time I get the, uh, the pleasure to share the Word of God with you today, and uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to pick up in Genesis 47. So if you have a Bible, and if you have a Bible at home, I'd encourage you to take it out. Uh, we will put the verses on the screen for you, uh, but it's always good to have it in front of you, okay? So uh, in order for us to understand the first 12 uh, verses of chapter 47 of uh, Genesis, uh, I want to dip back a little bit into Genesis 46, uh, beginning in verse 31. It just, it just helps uh, us gather a, a greater understanding, I think, of the text. So if you're able, uh, please stand in honor of God and his word. The Word of God says this. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Verse 7. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. The word of God, you may have a seat. As I began to, uh, to look at this passage, uh, when I first began to study it, I, uh, the initial thought I had was that th this is going to be kind of hard. Uh, and you might say, well, well Mike, what, what would make you say that? Uh, th there doesn't appear to be a, a long list of hard-to-pronounce names like we had a couple weeks ago. Uh, or, uh, you know, we got to do this complicated math like we did a couple weeks ago. Or, or there's any interpretive challenges. Uh, they don't appear to be present in the text. So what would make you say that? Well, it's not so much what's uh, in the passage, but what's not in the passage. What we don't see here is drama, conflict, struggle. The, 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 there's no skirmishes to speak of. No, no animosity amongst the people, no antagonism uh, amongst the, 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 the characters in our passage. 
So who are those people? Who, who's, who's at the, the, the center of this story here? Basically, the players uh, could be broke up into three parties. You have Joseph. We've been following his life for a long time now. Then you have his family. That would be his uh, father and brothers. And then, of course, you have Pharaoh. And, and the, the interplay between these three parties is, is very much good-natured. It, it's, it's very friendly. Everybody's kind of playing their respective role in harmony with one another. And I just, I don't think it really sits well with us in the 21st century. You know, this idea of all, everybody's playing nice. And there's no conflict or drama to speak of. I, I'm not sure that really appeals to us. Because last Monday night, nobody tuned into Monday Night Football to watch Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson gather in an empty stadium to have a nice game of catch, right? We, we wanted to see, you know, a high-powered offense going up against a formidable defense. As the, the proverbial phrase goes, the, you know, the unstoppable force versus the, you know, immovable object. That's what we're looking for. Conflict, drama, struggle, as these two powerhouse teams are vying for AFC supremacy. That's what we want. Even when we, go to, when we go to Netflix, you get that little bar on Netflix, what's popular? Well, I'll tell you what's not popular in there is, is the documentary produced by the Nature Channel that's uh, some narrator, you know, talking about the planets, uh, you know, revolving around the sun in conjunction with one another. And he's got these dulcet tones talking about tide goes in, and tide goes out. And, this is how nature functions when everything's working in perfect harmony day in and day out. I'm boring myself as I talk about this, right? We say, boring. You know what we want? We want the creationist and the evolutionist to get into a no-holds-barred cage match to the death where two men enter, but only one will survive. We're like, yeah, that's what we're talking about. That's what we want. Well, that's not what we have in our passage today. Everybody's playing nice. It's rather pedestrian. Dare I say it's even positive in its content. So let's dive in. Let's see, what do we have here? Let, let's simply start by observing the text. What, what is happening here? Well, it's Jacob and his family. They made the long journey from Canaan to Egypt, and they've settled in Goshen to be specific. And this was the land that was promised to them kind of in an unofficial sense prior to the journey. But now they're there. Uh, Joseph has reunited with his father, Jacob, ran out to see him, you know, big hug, uh, fell on his neck, and the text says that he wept for a while. But now that everybody's there, they got to kind of make this transaction a little more, let's just say, uh, official. So there's this matter of, of being presented before Pharaoh, the, the, the most important person in all of Egypt. So you got the brothers coming in first, and then Jacob, the patriarch. And as I read the passage to you, maybe a question popped into your head. I had this question as I was reading this at first. Why is it that Joseph chooses just five of the brothers to be presented? Why, why not all 11? Perhaps you had that question. Well, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, there isn't a great answer for it because the, the people much smarter than me, the scholars out there that I lean upon heavily to get these questions answered, they differ. They differ. Some say Joseph wanted to take the strongest of the, of the brothers to, to make a good impression uh, with, with Pharaoh. Uh, but others say, no, no, he probably took five of the weakest, the less formidable brothers, because, you know, he, he may have had a fear that, that Pharaoh would, would take them in and, and put them uh, into use as soldiers, and he didn't want that to happen. Ultimately, we don't know why it was just five. And, and again, the Bible tells us everything that we need to know, not necessarily everything that we may want to know. So, so Joseph coaches up his brothers, and this is what Pastor Ben looked at last week, where he provides words of wisdom. He's, he's coaching them up. He's telling them, this, this is what you can expect when you go in. Here's what Pharaoh's going to say, and here's how you respond. And notice how, how dead on Joseph is. 
I mean, Joseph has a, a, a complete thorough understanding of the situation. He says, Pharaoh's going to ask you this question. What is your occupation? And lo and behold, what does Pharaoh do? He asks that very question, word for word. And the answer that they are to give is that they are shepherds. And, and then another thought occurred to me. I said, you know, why is it there's such a, an emphasis here in the passage of, of insisting upon that they need to be saying that they're shepherds? I mean, it, it's mentioned a few times here, and I thought, is, is there any significance to that? Well, there's a, there's a number of possible reasons. I'll give you three of them. One is uh, they, that they wanted to ensure, Joseph, kind of the, the guy who's pulling the strings here, he wanted to ensure that they would end up in the land of Goshen, uh, which was, as I understand it, a very fertile land, uh, a great land for uh, pasture, for the, for the flocks that they would have. There. And it wasn't a very uh, densely populated area, so there was room for all of that. So that would be the first reason. Uh, second reason is because it's not very densely populated, uh, some people thought that perhaps Joseph is trying to insulate his, his brothers from the culture uh, of Egyptian pagan idolatry, really, which was going on, and Joseph knew that well. And so he saw the disdain that Egyptians had for shepherds as a blessing to, to keep the two cultures from merging together. And then the third one, and, and granted, a lot of these are, are, are highly speculative, uh, but, and this one, I think I thought of this one myself. I was thinking shepherds. Shepherds don't seem very intimidating to me, right? They just, they care for animals. They're out there in the field. They're all smelly, you know. They're just doing what shepherds do. I, I don't think they're intimidating. Uh, they, they wouldn't pose a threat to Pharaoh uh, because, you know, he could say, listen, my family's not here to gain any sort of influence. This isn't a power play. They're not looking for, for political power. They're harmless shepherds. That, that's all they are. Don't feel threatened by them. So those are some reasons there. But, but notice Joseph and his knowledge of, of the Israelites, because of his heritage. I mean, he's being a Jew, he knows, he knows the Israelite people, and he also knows the Egyptian people, the Egyptian culture, and he knows Pharaoh very well. So Joseph is, is very useful to be the perfect conduit to make all this happen, to make the transaction here successful. And that's exactly what happened. Again, no drama. Uh, they, they present. Everything went well. Uh, ultimately, Pharaoh offers the land. He gives them the best of the land. Go ahead, settle in Goshen. As verse 11 says, uh, in the land of Ramses, which is Goshen. And so our text ends with Joseph providing for, you know, just the right amount of food for his family based upon the number, and uh, all's well. That, that's the passage right there. You know, but if we ended it right there, you, you might say, well, all right, Mike, that was a nice little story good little biblical exposition. But what am I to take from this to apply to my life here and now? That's a great question. So what can we learn? Well, I came up with three points, uh, three points for you to consider. And the first one is this. We see how the people of God are to interact with government officials and those God has placed in authority over us. Let me say that again. We see how the people of God are to interact with government officials and those God has placed in authority over us. Go back with me to verse 2. Verses 2 through 4, and I want you to count the amount of times we read the words, your servants. Verse 2 says this, And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Your servants, your servants, your servants. Three times they say it. And notice the end of verse 4 the utilization of the word please. 
Uh, there's a fascinating study here. Pastor Ben enlightened me, uh, gave me a great resource about the word na in Hebrew. Uh, it, it gets, it's very interesting. It's, it's a word that's all throughout Hebrew, and it's often translated as please. But they often just leave out the please in our English Bibles. You know why? Because it would be please everywhere. It would be all throughout the Old Testament. It would, it would just bog down the whole, the whole Testament itself. But just notice these, these guys and the manners that they have, the, the polite speech that they have. And I think there's a lesson here for us. For the Christian, this should be a, 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 a way that we are communicating with people. You almost can't use the words please and thank you enough. This should be the manner of speech for the Christian. We had an event here a couple nights ago. Uh, it was a conversation with law enforcement officers. It was Friday night. And uh, if, you, if you weren't able to uh, attend or watch it at home, it's on our YouTube channel. I'd, I'd highly recommend you check it out. It's a couple hours long. Very good stuff, though. Uh, but one of the people that, really the guy who's kind of behind it, in addition to Pastor Mike, would be uh, my good friend Troy Dunstan. And uh, Troy just did a fabulous job. And at the end of the event, he proceeded to thank everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. He thanked the panelists that were up here. He thanked the people who came out to watch it. He thanked Pastor Mike. He thanked Kathy. He thanked his wife, Carmen. He thanked Lindsay and me who were back in the booth. I mean, if we didn't stop him, he'd still be here thanking people, okay? I saw him afterwards. I'm like, dude, you didn't thank the inventor of the camera. You didn't thank Verizon and Comcast for getting it out there to the folks. I mean, why stop there? But this, there's something to be said for manners and polite speech. There is. My son, Nate, he understands this well. Uh, when he has a request, he, he bookends his request with the word please. He says, hey, Daddy, may I please have some cheesy pasta, please? Like, he's like, I'm going to make sure I get that. You, you heard my please, right? I said it. I'm like, I see you working, son. But... You know, notice the reverence that these guys have for Pharaoh. They do. It's evidenced by their speech. And then Jacob comes in and he blesses Pharaoh. Not once, but twice. Respect, reverence, dignity, honor. Words that are quickly becoming a thing of the past in our current culture. Now you might say, Mike, uh, this passage here is is." descriptive. This, this, this is not prescriptive. Do you have any Bible verses that, that would clearly command me in the 21st century as a Christian to be respectful and show honor to government, government officials and those in authority over me? I think that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Because I'm going to start with 1 Peter 2. I'm going to give you a couple of them. Now, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17, if you notice, uh, I'm going to deviate from the norm here. I'm going to quote from the New American Standard. Uh, I hope you allow that, please, uh, because I just think it just, it just renders it slightly different, and it kind of comes through, uh, in my estimation, a little, little clearer. So I thank you for that. And notice my please and thank you. I'm trying to practice what I preach. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now that applied to the people of Peter's day under that governmental rule just as much as it applies to us today under our current governmental or political leadership. But I know how the dialogue goes. Yeah, but there's so much corruption in our political system. Question, is our current political system a human institution? 
It is. It is. And unless you're commanded to sin, you submit. Yeah, but those politicians, they're not behaving very honorable. I mean, Mike, did you catch the debate last Tuesday night? I did. And honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. But they're not deserving of honor. That's something that you earn. Okay, so, so that's how we're going to do this? You, you, you treat people just based upon that which they've earned for themselves? You just give them what they deserve? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. I don't think you want to play that game. I don't think you want to play that game at all. That viewpoint will take you straight to hell. If we got that which we deserve from God, that's hellfire for you and for me. You can go to hell with that viewpoint. I don't think you want that. I don't want to get what I deserve. That's the last thing I want from God. I don't want him to give me justice. I want mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need grace. And grace is getting that which you don't deserve. It's the very definition of the word. See, we want to receive grace and give justice. And, and you and I, we need God's grace. We are dependent upon it at this very moment. It's, it's what's allowing me to stand up here and utter words to come out of my mouth. It's what's allowing us to, to, to arrive here at the church building. It, it's got you out of bed this morning to tune into the live stream. The air that we are breathing, it's his air. It's a, it's a gift of his grace. That, that organ pumping in your chest that we call the heart, it's the drumbeat of God's grace. With every ba-bump, 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 you should be hearing, my grace, my grace, my grace. It's from him. We're currently living on his planet, breathing his air, eating his food, enjoying this, this heart beating inside our chest, keeping us alive. The heart that he gave you to pump the blood that he gave you through the body that he gave you, and he lets you live in that body for now. But the wages of sin is death. And that's what we deserve. Yet he graciously lets us live. See, we want God to be gracious to us. I hope you do. You don't want justice. But if you want that grace to come your way, how about we extend that grace to others, including those in authority over us? 1 Timothy 2 tells us to pray for our leaders. Do you pray for them? I don't. Not like I should. I don't use my mouth to offer up prayers. You know what I use my mouth for? To complain. I, I don't think I'm alone. Let me ask you, what did you do on Wednesday morning? If you watched the debate Tuesday night, did you go into the workplace or the, you know, the homeschool co-op and, and did you do what I did? I'll tell you my Wednesday morning, it was right in that kitchen, right back there, getting myself some coffee, talking about the total train wreck that I watched the night before. I said, you guys see that thing? Man, oh, I've seen more mature debates on a middle school playground. I mean, the only thing that was missing is, yeah, I know you are, but what am I? You know, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me, sticks to you. That's the only thing that would have made it more complete. That was my reaction Wednesday morning. But God in his providence, he, he took me from that kitchen to that office right over there, and I begin to read about respecting my leaders, about honoring them and praying for them. That doesn't mean you're blind to the facts of the matter. If you agree with me and you thought that thing was a total train wreck, how about we pray for that train wreck, right? Instead of complaining, criticizing, and mocking, why don't we do what the scriptures say and pray? Pray for them. Pray that God would work in these men so that the next debate would be more civil, more dignified, more respectful. See, instead of standing around sipping coffee in there and bellyaching about what I saw and heard the night before, what if I came in 
And, and I said, hey guys, uh, I'm sure you watched the debate like I did last night. Uh, I am very much grieved. I know we have a lot to do. Uh, could we just gather in those couches and chairs by the fireplace? And could we pray for these guys and for our country? Problem is I'm not that mature. I, I say that now, like five days later, after the word of God is, you know, rattled around in my brain and convicted my heart. But isn't that a way better response? I think it is. And I do believe that this is a real issue for us. I, I think I'm putting my finger on something that is very pertinent. And th this is the word of God. You know, and hopefully I'm not misusing the word of God. I do think it is a descriptive passage, but uh, employing 1 Peter and 1 Timothy, we see we're, 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 not vi we're, we're violating these scriptures. We're not obeying them. We're not. We're sinning in our conversations. We're, we're sinning in our comments. We're sinning out there on social media as we diatribe about Trump and Biden and whoever else we rail against. I'm guilty. I'm confessing my sin. And, and I'm hoping you would join in. And I think one of the keys to this preaching thing is, is you put yourself out in front of the firing squad. You say, I'm right here. You want to join in with the guilty parties like me? Because you know, if you do that, guess what? You're actually in good company. You're in good company. And that's the first step to moving in the right direction is when you, you, know, you evangelize to somebody, it just, somebody who's full of self-justification, you just got to get them to admit they're not all that. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the first step in coming to Jesus is you acknowledge you need them, right? And the best of us fail. So you're, you're in good company. And I would point to exhibit A, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Acts 23, the first five, five verses in Acts 23. Let me set the scene while you turn there. Uh, the Apostle Paul is in the, the presence of a very important person, an authority figure. This man's name is Ananias. And Ananias is, is a very brutal man. But he also occupies a very exalted position. He's the high priest. And, and check out this encounter that they have. And there's other people gathered there. Verse 1, Acts 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And as I understand, this was not a tap. This was not an open-handed slap. This was a punch in the face. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? They're like, yo, Paul, check yourself, bro. And, and notice he, he changes his tone. Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What is Paul doing? He's acknowledging his guilt. It's like, I blew it. Uh, he confesses that and then quotes scripture, a citation from Exodus 22:28, And that is a, a very good model to follow right there on the pages of scripture. So let's say you want another example. You want something a little more current. Uh, how, to, how should we, you know, behave when we know we have blown it here in an election year in 2020? What does that look like? I, I have an example to, to share with you that's very relevant to us here at Living Water. Uh, I did ask permission to share this. I asked uh, Pastor Mike if he would be so kind to let me read a portion of an email that he sent to uh, the whole congregation really back in January. So you, you may have read this already. Uh, but I want to share a portion of it now. And Pastor Mike, as he always is, is, is gracious to me. Uh, I told him I didn't want to pick at any scabs, and I think he has enough healing to do already. So I uh, didn't want to exacerbate the situation. But this is what he sent to your email inbox and mine with the subject, an apology. It says, Dear Living Water family member, Pastor Mike here. 
I'm writing our entire Living Water family to offer an apology. This morning as I was doing my quiet time, God impressed on my heart that I sinned against him and against you through an illustration, actually an attempt at humor that I used during this weekend's message. Specifically, it was when I was joking about my idea of how to get our federally elected officials to work together. As I was approaching that point in my message, I sensed God's spirit telling me not to share that small portion of the message, but I ignored God's prompting and went ahead and did it anyway. No one mentioned anything to me after the service, and during the service, people actually laughed and clapped, and I was one of those people. However, despite my foolhardy attempt at a little levity in the midst of what was an otherwise challenging passage of Scripture, I should have never said what I said. So when God's Spirit convicted my heart this morning, I wasn't about to ignore his prompting again. Rather than making a joke about our federally elected officials, God's Word teaches that I and we should be praying for them. And he cited 1 Timothy and some other passages. And he says, would you please forgive me for my foolish words? I cannot imagine the pressure that is on our elected officials. Certainly they have... They are being pulled in so many different directions, are facing inordinate temptation, and are probably just as frustrated as we are about the political acrimony in our nation. No doubt many of them, like many of us, desire the absolute best for our nation and its people, but simply have difficulty figuring out how to make that happen. Once again, I am very sorry. Thank you in advance for your grace toward me. I will do my best to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's prompting in the future. Humbly, Pastor Mike. Now, that right there is incredibly biblical. You know why? Because he did exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He, he, he said something he probably shouldn't have said. He owned it. He acknowledged it. He apologized and then quoted Scripture. See, when, when you do that when, when that, when that happens, a couple things happen. One is you create a culture. You create a culture of, of, of honesty and humility. That paves the way for others. If somebody we respect so much as Pastor Mike can, can humble himself to say those words, I certainly can do that. See, that, that type of stuff, it spreads. It spreads, and... and Sorry for the word, it's contagious, okay? I know that's not a word we want to hear. In a different sense, it's contagious in a good way, okay? But how do I know that? How do I know it's contagious? It spread to me. As I had to go fish that email back from, from January and go find it, I saw I had replied to him. Here's what I said. Uh, that was a great reminder, Pastor Mike, for, for me to walk humbly before God and others. You do that well. Uh, the Bible verses you cited also reminded me of how inconsistent I am with regard to aligning my views with the word. I violate the ones you listed on the regular. This, this right here is a great example of how God can redeem even our bad choices. Thanks for setting the standard for the rest of us with this well-written, humble reminder. Go ahead. If you want to clap? Go ahead. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. That, that, that clap, that is for the Lord. But my friends, brothers and sisters, we are the church. We're not the world, okay? The world can get away with certain things that are forbidden for the Christian. There might even be things that, that come natural to us, that, that just feel like, yeah, it's okay. Everybody else is doing it. It's okay by worldly standards. But God says, no, for you, Christian, forbidden. And we need to recognize that distinction that we are called to a much higher standard. Even if politicians get on TV and have little or no respect for one another, and then everybody else joins in, does not give us license to join in. It doesn't. We're called to that much higher standard. Now, before I move on to the next point, I want to say this. You're thinking it, so I will say it. Okay, this does not mean that we will always agree with our political leaders. Uh, honoring them is not synonymous with agreeing with them. Doesn't mean that you can't disagree with a leader's policies, actions, or even their behavior. But when we disagree, we need to be careful. We do. 
We need to be careful not to slander their character, to mock and ridicule them, speak evil against them, or malign them because they are image bearers of God. And what comes with that is inherent dignity and value. Whether you think they deserve it or not, it's, 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 it's apart from us. You don't, you don't get a say on it. It's, it's there. They got it. God says so. And if we don't think they're deserving of it, it's irrelevant. See, there is a time, though, that we do call leaders to repentance. There is. There's a time for that. And I, the, the example, I'm sure there's multiple ones in Scripture, but, but Nathan before King David just leaps to mind for me. So there is a time for that. Point number two. Uh, and I do think this one's related to the first one. I'll, I'll try to connect them as best I can. But my second point is we are all sojourners. We are all sojourners. What is a sojourner? A traveler, somebody who doesn't have a permanent residence. They're on their way. They're just kind of passing through onto a more permanent place. Think pilgrim or wanderer, if you will. And we have a sojourner in our text here today, and it's Jacob. Verse 7, let's read that. Joseph, uh, then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. So basically, Pharaoh's asking him in so many words, How old are you? I mean, he says specifically, How many are the days of the years of your life? And, and notice Jacob doesn't say, well, I've been on this planet for 130 years, or I've been alive for 130 years. No, what he does is he, he substitutes out the word life and inserts in its place sojourning. That's how he's defining his life. He says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. And it's true, Jacob did his fair share of wandering around. He traveled, he was in Haran, Shechem, Bethel, Bethlehem, and now he's in Egypt. And he says this is the case for his fathers. That would be Isaac and then uh, Abraham as well. However, uh, one of my favorite commentators, uh, uh, James Boyce, uh, love James Boyce, yeah, he had this to say about Jacob's claim to be a sojourner. And uh, I couldn't word it any better than uh, James Boyce did, so I'm going to let him do the hard work here, and I'll just quote him. He said, It is hard to read this statement without suspecting that there is more in it than a mere reference to wanderings. For one thing, Jacob refers to the pilgrimage of his father Isaac, and Isaac had not really wandered much. It is not mere physical movement that Jacob has in mind, but rather the spiritual truth that for God's people, this world, however much we may settle into it, is not our home. We are pilgrims here until we come at last to that heavenly home God has prepared for us. And this is a concept that gets more fully developed in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 to be specific. Let me read that beginning in verse 8. It harkens back to these guys, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. A reference to heaven, a heavenly home, the ultimate promised land that is for God's called out people to be his children, the children of God. And, and this gets further developed beginning in verse 13. These all, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, where? On the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You and I, dear Christian, we are on that same journey. We are all sojourners. This world is not our home. And that is why, that's one of the reasons why we can still be respectful to politicians with whom we disagree. They're not messing up our heaven. They can't touch that. They can make a mess of things here on earth, but they can't touch our ultimate home, which is heaven. And now make no mistake about it. I want to be crystal clear. We need to care about what's happening in our world. I'm not preaching a pie in the sky when you die by and by message. I'm not saying that. We need to be involved in what goes on in this world. There are decisions being made and officials being elected. There's extreme ramifications for that. Decisions get made. People get appointed. There's a lot of important implications to our, to our current world. I don't think we need to be, what's the phrase, so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good, if I'm rightly understanding what that means. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. Please don't misunderstand me. We need to care. We need to be informed. We need to vote. We need to participate. But this place is not our all in all. It's not. See, when this world is all you got and somebody comes along and does something that you don't like, what are you going to do? You're going to rail against them. You're going to criticize them. You're going to call them names. You're going to get nasty with them. Why? They're upsetting your little corner of heaven, this life. But we're not made for this life. We're made for the life to come. So November 3rd, I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote, and I'm encouraging you to vote. But no matter what happens, my world is not getting rocked on November 3rd. It's not. All my eggs are not in that basket. President Trump, President Biden, President so-and-so, Jesus is Lord of all. My Bible and your Bible says that they will all die like mere men. They'll be like every other ruler and they will fall. But Christ is king. See, our sight shouldn't be solely focused, not an emphasis on the word solely focused on the people here and now, on these mere mortals. We need to aim higher than Trump or Biden. We've got to set our sights higher than them and put them on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we as Christians, we've got to keep all this in perspective. There is a tension that we, we, we're, we're focused on heaven. That's our ultimate goal. That's where our heart is. But we, we live on this earth, and there's, there's real things that are going on that we need to be involved in, we need to care about. But we're sojourners here, and we're not home yet. See, there's, there's a story that's out there. I've heard variations of this story. I like this story. I, there's got, it's got to be true, but people, I don't know, they do funny things. You get all these different details. I, I couldn't make sense of it, but here's how I understood the story, which I do think is, is true. Uh, there was a missionary who was serving overseas for like 40 years or so. He's out in the mission field, decades of service, and he's returning home. And he's on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt was coming back from one of these uh, big game hunting expeditions that he, that he went on. And so as the ship's coming into port, there's all these people gathered. Huge crowd of people cheering, you know, signs, banners, confetti flying. You know, there's a band there playing to welcome the president home. And this poor missionary, he prays to the Lord something like this. Lord, I don't expect a band or a crowd to cheer my return, but it would be nice if someone would be there to welcome me home. And it was at that moment that he felt as if the Lord had put his hand on his shoulder and said, my child, you're not home yet. That's a cool story. Remember the song Stephen Curtis Chapman? If you were paying attention, we played it earlier. We are not home yet. I won't sing it uh, for you. I won't torture you with that. But I'll quote uh, a couple of the lyrics that I like. Uh, he writes, To all the travelers, pilgrims longing for a home, from one who walks with you on this journey called life's road, it is a long and winding road. I offer this. We must remember this. We are not home yet. 
Last point. And I do think this one flows from point number two. I think there's kind of some congruence here, or a, a progression, I should say, in these points. I don't know, maybe it's just in my head. But basically, why is it that we even have a heavenly home? I mean, who, who's secured that place for us? Well, the answer to that, of course, is Jesus. Jesus has done that. And I would ask you, do you see him in this text? Do you see Jesus? Because he's there, but you've got to know how to look for him. What, what is Joseph doing uh, with his family? Well, what's he doing for his family, I should say? He's advocating for them. And an advocate speaks for somebody else. They, they represent them. They, they speak on their behalf. See, the brothers are being presented here to Pharaoh, the most important person in Egypt. Very high, lofty, powerful position. They're coming to him, but there's a person to his right hand. The right hand of power is occupied by who? Joseph. Joseph is there right alongside. And these brothers come to the situation, they have nothing to offer. They don't have a thing. Nothing, honey. They got nothing to present. They got nothing to bring with them. They've contributed nothing to make this happen. It's all the work of Joseph. The only thing that they have contributed to, to have this, to this whole thing is the sin in the very beginning when they had jealousy over Joseph, over some coat and some dreams, and decided that they were going to do him harm. All throughout these chapters, it's all Joseph. It's the work of Joseph. The brothers, they're not even coming from a position of neutrality. They've sinned greatly against Joseph. They sought to kill him. They sold him into slavery. And then they covered the whole thing up. So Joseph, he's the offended party. And what does he do? He forgives them. He forgives them. The only reason these guys are still alive and haven't been sentenced to death yet for attempted murder and or slave trading or, or have died of starvation yet, don't forget the famine, the only reason these guys are still alive is due to who? Joseph. God working through Joseph to be sure, but it's Joseph. And he's the one currently advocating on their behalf. You're beginning to see Christ in the text? See, we too have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't you love that? I love that. See, what we need to understand is you and I, we have an enemy. And, and one of the go-to moves of this enemy is to accuse. He's known as the accuser. And the scriptures say he accuses the brethren day and night before God. It's like this. We're in a courtroom, and, and we're the one on trial. And we're in big trouble, and we know it because we're lawbreakers. And, and Satan, he plays the role of the prosecuting attorney. And with his bony finger, he points it at you. And he accuses you. And you know, I'm guilty. But he's accusing you, and he proceeds to mound up piles and piles of evidence against you. And we got nothing to say, because we are indeed guilty. Our conscience testifies. We have the law written on our heart. We know we've done wrong. We've lied. We've stolen. We've cheated. We've, we've done all these things. And he's quick to point it out and present the evidence. And so condemnation is due to us, and we should be sentenced to death as a punishment for our crimes. And that's how this would go down if it wasn't for one truth. There is someone on our side. We need a defense attorney, someone to come alongside and speak for us, to defend us, a better Joseph, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that. Just think about Jesus Christ the righteous. Try something funny. Insert your name in there. Mike Bongo the righteous. Ha! That is laughable. It's absurd. I love Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the one who deserves that title. Not me. The only righteousness I have comes from him. That he gives to me. He's the one who deserves it. The sinless son of God who speaks for us and speaks on our behalf as our advocate. And if you are in Christ, you know what he says of you? This one's mine. 
He or she is mine. That's what he says. But the voice cries out, but they're guilty. They deserve to pay for their crimes. And, and you know what Jesus says? That's right. And I paid every bit of it. I paid it in full. That's what happened on that cross. He died so that we could be free. That would be, the law would have no claim upon us. This is such good news. Put yourself there. Make it personal. Imagine yourself in the courtroom. You're, you're guilty. You're, you're there. You're guilty. You know it. The evidence is presented. You, your mouth is stopped. Uh, there's no more justification. You know it. You, you, the only time you might open your mouth is to admit your guilt and confess. So you just hang your head, and the gavel's about to come down. Judgment is about to be rendered, and you deserve every bit of the sentence coming your way which is not a 10 to 20-year bid. It's a death sentence, and it's coming. But imagine Jesus Christ the righteous right there next to you. Imagine this, seriously. And, and he, he comes along, and he puts his arm around you. And in the face of all those accusations, in the face of all that evidence, he says, he's mine. She's mine. They're not going anywhere. They're with me. I love them. I demonstrated my, my love for them by dying on that cross, and I purchased their freedom. And the judge says what? You are free to go. Not guilty. Not guilty. The verdict is in not guilty due to what? Lack of evidence, because Jesus took it all away. If you're here today and, and you're not in Christ, I don't know how you could reject that message. I, it's called the greatest story ever told. There's no better news. You can watch Fox and CNN all you want. You can be involved in everything this world has to offer. This is a truth that is it's mind-blowing. It, it, it is absolutely mind-blowing. It's almost too good to be true. But it is true. That's the good news. But it's found only in Christ. It's his life, his death, his resurrection. And so I urge each and every one of us, come to him. Come to him. Be acquitted today. Let's pray. Lord God, this truly is an incredible message. Uh, thank you for putting me in a position where I can proclaim it. I can share it. Be a, a mouthpiece for you. To be an ambassador. To be given such a great ministry of reconciliation. There's no greater story. Where, where is it that the, the hero dies for the villain? The judge steps down from the bench to die for the criminal? It's unheard of. It's unheard of. And for anyone who would recognize their guilt, they would acknowledge that they have fallen short of your holy standard. And they would simply come to you, Lord Jesus, and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, you tell us that you, if anyone comes like that, you won't turn them away. That you will embrace them. And you will say, they're yours. He or she is yours. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness, for reconciliation, to bring us into a right relationship with you and then a right relationship with others. You are so good, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' good name I pray.